0: chapter 3 is where we are in God's Word as we continue on through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. I actually really do need this water. Um, Colossians chapter 3, we'll pick up in verses 20 and 21 where we left off last week. Also turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, which is where we'll be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. We read the parallel text from Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus as well. Hear God's Word. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We saw last week, and then this week what we'll be focused on is verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Ephesians gives us a little more information, and that was kind of Paul. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, if you want to turn over there, should also be on the screen for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible Word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of God stand forever. We pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you would do your work this morning to instruct our hearts and our minds. Lord, I confess that I am—I have fear and trepidation. Because um, there's so much here um, and it's weighty and we feel so guilty as parents so often. I pray for those who are older and have already sent their children out of the home and to hear these things may bring up regret. I pray that they live by the grace of Jesus. That Lord, the mercy of Christ would be upon them. I pray for those in this room who are, are parents in the midst of it, in the thick of it, of young children now. That Lord, you would give them grace and mercy. That there would be means of wisdom to be gleaned here but again would be people who get up every day and embrace the grace of Jesus and then seek to do their best to instruct and disciple their children. And for those who are single here or those who don't have children yet who are married and look forward to that, Lord, I pray that you prepare their hearts for this. Lord, to give them the weight of what they're walking into perhaps in the future would give them a seriousness of discipling their own lives and shaping their lives according to Christ Jesus. We ask this in the name of your son, amen. All right, I have a little bit of feedback, David. Um, this week, uh, we're going to look at... I'm going to do something a little bit different, or at least that makes me uncomfortable. Here's how I normally... I like to give you the clear call, the commands of Scripture, and say, this is what you ought to do. And then I like to say, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus fulfilled it for you. And in light of what Jesus has done for you, how that empowers you to obey God's Word. Well, the problem is, even though I split this passage into children and parents, I realized this week, as I was studying for the parents, and I had so much information I realized all I'm going to get to is really the call, and I can't get to the gospel. And so um, I I plead your pardon this week. Um, Preach to yourself the gospel throughout the week. I'm going to give you lots next week uh, in regards to how to apply and appropriate the gospel into this area of your life as parents. Uh, And yes, that does mean we will be focusing on parents on Easter Sunday. that, that's okay. That's allowed. Um, if you've been in this church, I've preached on the a resurrection seven times in my three and a half years here. So I've covered it rather sufficiently. So if you really need to hear a resurrection sermon, go listen to the podcast. Uh, everybody else here will be priesters, and they only ever get to hear about Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. So let's give them something else. Um, it's going to be good, really. I mean, already, right? It's going to be great. It's going to be huge. The poll numbers are It's. It's already, I've gotten great word about it. It's going to be awesome. You'll be okay. All right, so this week we look at the call to parent. Next week we'll look at the power and the hope of parenting in the gospel. All right, let's dive right in. We begin with the responsibility to parents and whose responsibility it is. That's what we're going to look at first. Then we'll look at the instructions and get into a lot of wisdom details of what it looks like to disciple and instruct your your children. And then finally we'll look at uh, the goal of parenting to close our time this morning. But the responsibility of parents well, who does it say is responsible to parent the children? In this verse, you might notice that it doesn't say here that, sh- that it's parents that are to keep from provoking their children and disciplining and instructing them. Instead, it's very specific. It says daddies. It says fathers, fathers. Now, there is, obviously, it applies to both fathers and mothers, to parents in general here, but Paul is specifically speaking to fathers, and why is that? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is maybe both historical and anthropological. That's the study of man. And, uh, and then the other is a more kind of responsibility and biblical reason. But one is this. The historical reason is that Paul is writing in a time that both Jews and Gentiles alike, the father is known as the king of the household. He's an autocrat. All power lies with him. And fathers were apt, as is still the case, to abuse the power and the leadership position that they have. Under Roman law, a father could do whatever he wanted to with his children. Therefore, what we actually find is that many fathers, that if they didn't like the idea of their child, if their child was deformed in some way, if their child was not the gender that they liked, usually if it was a female, they would go leave that child out in the woods, they would take the child down to the beach, and let the tide take the child out, or they would kill the child themselves. Kids, be glad you don't live in Rome. <laughs> This is how fathers... And in fact, the early church was known for its graciousness and love and became known for its sacrificial service because it would go out into the woods and find these children. They would, Christians would hang out on the beach, on the rocks, trying to save the babies that would be left out before their tide would take them out. This, was how, this is how Roman fathers, and even sometimes Jewish fathers, treated their children. And yet Paul is very countercultural, similar to when we looked at husbands and wives a couple weeks ago, that where women were seen as men's property in that day... But here it says, Paul says, no, 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 no. No, no, they are made in God's image. They are special in my sight. You are to love and care for your wives. And so it is with children as well. If fathers didn't, didn't get to abuse their authority, they were to use their authority to serve their children. All right, so that's one reason why he's speaking specifically to the fathers. The other is simply the responsibility reason. Fathers are the ones that God holds responsible. And therefore, he speaks directly to them. God says they are the ones who are answerable as to how the children turn out, and they are the ones who are ultimately responsible how children are to be discipled and instructed in the home. Now, this is a problem because many dads are simply flat out not interested in this. They're way too interested in the success, their success idol at work and gaining power or money. They're way too interested in their hobbies or their sports, and they're not as interested in being the ones who oversee the discipline and instruction of their children. This is an old old stat, but I'm going to bring it up anyways. James Dobson, who is the head of Focus on Family for many, many years, describes a study, one study that was done of middle-class American families and fathers who were asked in the, in the questionnaire how long they spent, how many minutes or how long a day did they spend with their children. In particular, their one-year-old child is what the study was on. And the father's reply was 20 minutes a day. That on average, the middle class father spends 20 minutes a day with his child. Well, what they did was the researchers then uh, put mics in the house and Mike the dad. And what they actually found was, no, he doesn't spend 20 minutes a day. But on average, spends 37 seconds interacting with their one-year-old child each day. God says that men are the ones who are primarily responsible and therefore, I think we need to do a little bit better than 37 seconds and probably better than 20 minutes as well. So dads, you're responsible for this. You're the ones who are specifically Paul speaking to. And I am going to speak in general to parents this morning, but I want you to take that to heart. Now, two other people to speak to who are not dads this morning, that this has implications for. First, if you're a single man, if you're a single man, this responsibility, what, what this means is you should not, you should not take up a marriage or any sexual activity, physical intimacy with a woman, until you are willing to take up this role. At, or the guy who did premarital counseling with my wife and I, he said this, "Even in a broken world where infertility is all over the place and it's, and it's in its sadness. But yet, even in a broken world, God has biologically stacked the deck for pregnancy. He's biologically stacked the deck for pregnancy. And men, if you are going to engage in physical intimacy with a woman, you are signing on the dotted line of parental responsibility. Take that to heart. And the other thing that can convict you as to how maybe you're viewing marriage or even be in viewing sexual intimacy in your life. Second, a word to you mothers. Because this all sounds great, doesn't it? He's fussing at dads. This is awesome. Maybe he'll finally get involved. Now, here's a warning for you. If I call dad to get involved and to lead the household and to be ultimately responsible for the discipleship and instruction of your children, guess what this might mean? He might do it. Now, a lot of you like this idea of dad getting involved, but really your idea of dad getting involved is he comes to help you. You still control, you still lead, it's you get to determine how the family is raised and led, and he's supposed to help you. In reality, what we see here is it's the man's responsibility, and he's asking and pleading for your help, Understand what you're asking for when you ask for your husband to be involved. You're asking for him to take leadership in this area, and they ought to, and you ought to be willing to let him do that, even with his flaws and his failings in that area. All right, so that's the responsibility. Second, we'll spend the majority of our time this morning, is on the instructions for parenting. And we see two instructions here this morning. First, a negative instruction, which is essentially saying, don't do this which is don't provoke or exasperate your children is what it says. And then there's a positive instruction to parents, which is to they are actively to be engaging in the discipline and instruction of their children. Now I'm going to deal with the second one, the positive one first, because the first, the, the, the negative um, uh, instruction for us as parents can best be understood in light of the call to us to disciple and instruct our children. So let's look at that first. Two words, we are to disciple, I mean discipline, and we are to instruct our children. They are obviously, these words are going to be connected to one another. There's going to be a lot of bleed over. It's going to happen at the same time. But let me splice them out to fully understand them best. Discipline. What does that mean? It comes from the Greek word paideia. And this is most often translated discipline, which is the root word disciple. But understand that the range of meanings for this word is translated in many different ways. It can have positive connotations and negative connotations to it. Some translate the same word as nurture or training, which has a positive connotation to it. Others translate it with a more negative connotation, such as chastening or correcting or holding accountable. To discipline, though, what we see is to shape a person, to shape the, the rough edges off their life, that's a negative, and to um, nourish and, um, and, and to nurture the positive parts of who your children are, and shape them, that's what discipline is, and who God wants them to be. And the broad reach of this word helps us understand and apply what discipline should look like. We should be instructing our children's hearts and their lives all together. So that's what discipline is. Now the practices of discipline, what this means is that it should engage with, the way we discipline our children should involve both positive and negative consequences for their lives. It should be both punitive aspects and positive aspects to our discipline. This means our our responses to our children's behaviors and demeanors and attitudes and displays of their heart affections should elicit from us negative consequences when they disobey God and positive consequences when they obey God and obey us. First, there ought to be negative consequences. Negative consequences is what we classically think of as discipline. Discipline which is removing blessings from their life, removing privileges from their life, and often sometimes inflicting some sort of pain in their life. Now, very, very briefly, I don't have time to dive into this very much, but this does involve, we see biblically, that you may spank, that there may be a physical means of going about discipline. Now, understand that when the word discipline is used in the Scriptures, it is not only referring to that, but it is in the realm of acceptable discipline for a parent. Now, if they don't do it without anger, if it's not done in an abusive way, if it's done in a loving way, listen to some of these verses from Proverbs. Proverbs thirteen four says this, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Don't spare the rod. Now, some people would say that the rod is referring to what shepherds would use, and really it was a guiding force in their life. One particular writer named Jonathan Merritt who writes for Christianity Today. Christianity Today has pretty much come out and, uh, against spanking in any form whatsoever. And Merritt is the main, main guy they get to write against it. Now Merritt is, says nice things in a lot of different places. But he's frankly biblically illiterate in most issues. He doesn't seem to actually study all of God's word. But he picks and chooses the verses that he wants to focus on. Because it says this in Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod he will not die. I don't that think that's meaning guiding. It's not saying encouraging words to get back on the path because it goes on and says this, you shall strike him with the rod and you rescue his soul from Sheol. It is beyond debate that within God's biblical wisdom, that it is within the realm, I would say it's within your discipline arsenal as a parent to use spanking as a form of discipline. Now, it should not be your only negative form of discipline. And in fact, it probably shouldn't be the first negative form of discipline you should go to. It should be probably something that you cease at a certain age in their life. And there should be wisdom in the type of children, child that you have. If you've adopted a child and they come from a background where they've been abused physically, it may not be a good idea to use this form of discipline in their life. There are many other ways to discipline your children, even in negative forms, besides spanking. But we don't have to necessarily negate that from our arsenal offhand. All right, so that's the negative. But we also will be. I want to push on even more, though, is that as parents, we need to be engaging not simply in the negative consequences, but also the positive reinforcement of our children's positive and obedient behaviors. This is one of the things that my wife and I had a uh, aha moment with our second born this year. And in which he was not responding very well to the negative consequences in his life. He is highly sensitive. He is kind of a, he's easily shamed. And, and, and so we are finding that he was not, it wasn't producing a whole lot of good fruits out of him. And what we begin to do is be using more positive reinforcement and blessings in his life. Instead of simply saying, obey, and you'll get negative consequences. Instead now we say, if you obey, there's positive consequences. Or if you disobey, there's negative consequences. And being extremely encouraging with Him. And when we did this, the light bulb went off in my head. And I went, oh duh. If I had actually studied my Bible on God's discipline of us better, I would have realized this sooner. You see, what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that when God is your parent, when He is in a covenant relationship with you, He does not simply give you negative consequences for your disobedience. But in fact, He may primarily actually give you blessings for your obedience. That his means of motivating you to obey and bringing discipline into your life is not simply to punish you, but it's to bring blessings and to encourage you. We see this throughout. We actually saw this last week with children. The first first commandment with a promise. It is a positive promise to obey parents. So parents, use all that is at your disposal in regards to negative and positive discipline. The demeanor of your discipline of your children is really important. The discipline should be corrective, not vindictive. It should be corrective, not manipulative. And not out of selfish anger or selfish capitulation. Selfish capitulation is when you don't discipline your children because you're scared of what they're going to think of you. But you discipline out of love and affection for them. Our responses, one great response, uh, tell to look at your life and go, as my heart responds towards my children loving as I discipline them, is when your children sin and disobey you, do you get angry or you get anguished? One of the ways in which I know I am, most, I am most clearly walking with God, in which I am walking by the power of the Spirit, is that when I react, my internal reaction to my children's sin and to the, the sin of people in the church, since I get to involve my, myself in a lot of that as well, is that instead of getting angry, I am anguish, anguished. I am saddened by their behavior. Anger, understand this, particularly you fathers, but yes, probably you mothers, since you're with them a lot more, even maybe than the dads, is this. Anger is a relationship killer. Anger is the emotion that, all, that dominates all other emotions and affections. You can communicate affection in so many other ways, but if you get angry at your children over and over and over again, it is gonna dominate and cloud out those loving ways in which you care for your children. I'd also say this. Some parents get angry. Other parents are just simply cowards. You don't get angry, you simply remove yourself. You so desperately need your children to love you and approve of you that you refuse to take up this call to discipline your children. Parents, please discipline your kids. It's better for all the rest of us when we have to hang out with your kids for one thing. That's selfish on my part, but it's more importantly, it's good for your children. It is a means of loving them, of blessing your children. That's what it talks about in Hebrews 12 in God's relationship with us. It doesn't say that God disciplines us because he's mad at us. He disciplines us, it says, because he loves us. And in fact, if God doesn't discipline you, it says, you're not his son. It says this in Proverbs 3 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. So discipline your kids. That's positive commandment one for us. Second, we are to instruct our children. And discipline and instruction will often go hand in hand. Will be happening at the same time. But this word instruction is a different word. It's a wonderful word. It's the word Greek word, nutheteo, which is where we get the word counsel. You may have heard of nuthetic counseling, which is biblical counseling. Primarily, is what people mean by that. They're using the Bible to instruct and to guide. And that is the word that undergirds instruction. This is a how to word, a guiding word, a That's the focus that's given here. It has to do with dialoguing with your children and reasoning and listening to them and persuading them. and discipline, you're laying down and holding up the rules. But in counseling, you're listening to them and you're coaxing them and you're loving them and you're bringing them along and showing them how, not only what they have to do, but how they can obey God. This word, nithesia, is in the Greek word, is what we see here, is often translated admonition. You'll see this in other translations Some some do the instruction, some are admonition. And what admonition literally means is putting in the mind. It says, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To admonish in the Lord means that you are putting in your in your child's mind the Lord and His desires and His commands. You're acknowledging, you're you're saying, This is what God wants you to how He wants you to think and how He wants you to live. And where does God tell us about His thoughts and how He wants us to live? In His Word. This is a classic passage on parenting is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, which gives great articulation there as to what the parent-child relationship should look like. And I don't have time to read it this morning, but it essentially says this, that you are to teach your kids diligently God's Word. You're to teach your children God's Word in all seasons of life. You're to teach your children as you're walking along the road, which means this, that in every area and every aspect of life, you're to be applying God's truth to their lives. The call of Deuteronomy 6 is to so saturate your children with the biblical truth of God's word that everything, the way they view life and evaluate life, is through the lens of God's truth. There should be no such thing as a religious section in our schools. There should be a truth section, and it is God's truth. This is what you should be shooting for with your children, proclaiming to them and helping them understand God's truth over and over and over again. This has been the foundation of much education, this type of idea. Christian education and Christian worldview. In sixteen forty-three, our nation understood this, and our nation started a, a a university primarily for the instruction of pastors, of men who would become ministers of God's word. You know this university is Harvard. And here is the original purpose statement of Harvard University. It said this: Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is this: to know God. And Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Harvard is saying there that unless you have Jesus at the bottom of your ship, the ballast, the thing that gives you weight and direction to your life, that you will not understand anything else. That it is the primary means to learning and knowledge in this world. You should take this statement, this mission statement of Harvard, you should put it on a plaque, and you should put it in your homeschool room if you're a homeschool parent. You should put it on your kids' backpacks if they go to school, and every day you drop them off, they should see that. And when they get back in the car at the end of the day, you should read it and say, let's apply God's word to what you learned today. God's truth, all truth is God's truth. And this is what we ought to be doing as, as parents and as uh, teaching our children. We must not let our children see their faith as separate from thinking. What it, is very, it is very popular to say this these days, is that the heart is what you use for religion. The heart is it's, it's what you use for religion, but your brain is what you use for science and education. Not according to the Bible. In fact, we see in the greatest commandment it says this. It says the Bible says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is that all it says? No, but all your soul and all your mind. We are to have a reasonable, rational faith. We are told to have our minds transformed by Jesus Christ, to have our minds so informed by the truth of God's word that we think God's truth after him. Parents, you ought to see your children as this, as water, hot water, and God's word is the teabag that you're going to stick in there. And with the heat in their life, the suffering and your discipline and your instruction, that hot water, that, that teabag is going to seep into all aspects of that water, to every aspect of their mind and their hearts and the way they live your life. Parents, are you equipping yourselves? Do you have a strategy for this? What are practical ways to instruct your children in this? I'm just going to give you a couple this morning before we get to what is so exasperating for our children. That's this. First, practical ways to instruct your kids. First, you got to have family devotions. Your kids won't be able to apply God's word unless they know God's word. Now. Family devotions, for a lot of people, seems very daunting. It's really not that hard. I'll tell you, here's, here's the order it goes in our household. It lasts for 15 minutes. I turn to Cade, and I say, Cade, what song would you like to sing? Jesus Loves Me. Okay, let's sing Jesus Loves Me. Good stuff. All right, when we open Jesus' Story of a Bible, or somewhere devotional, and we read for like 8 to 10 minutes, and I simply ask them questions of what they're hearing. And then, we, and then we, I say, okay, what prayer requests do you guys have? What do you want to thank God for? And we each take turns praying. Then I turn to Lila, and I say, Lila, what song do you want to sing to close us in our devotional time? And we usually that's every move we make. And then, and then that's it. 15 minutes. We, if you do this four and five times a week, your children, by the time they leave your household, will have had time, in God's word, thousands of times. Thousands. The little things daily to getting your kids in God's word. Second, use God's community. God has given you a church. God has given you good books written by great Christians. God has given you good sermons. God has given you good friends. Utilize it. Don't keep your kids away from Christian community. Don't prefer their baseball team over their church friends. There is wisdom in having your kids. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want you engaged in mission. You should be engaged in mission. But they should have good friends, and they should be involved in the church. Third, you should talk about your own faith. You should talk about your own failings and your own repentance. Religion and Christianity should not be simply that's talked about this this separated time, 15 minutes for family devotions, or why we're at church. But you should bring the faith alive by talking about what God means to you, what God has done in your life. Some say, I don't want to impose my faith upon my children. Well, let me tell you this. If you don't impose your faith on your kids, someone else will. The most diehard atheist has a faith. Everyone is walking around this world with a worldview. There is no such thing as separation of church and state because everybody is part of a church. It may be the church of one, and they're probably the God of it, but it is a church, it is a religion, and it is a worldview. They are going to give your children their worldview and ask them to live by it. Give your children your worldview, and your faith is what will save them. This is what was so important in my own life when I was a young teenager. My father, we, we began reading books together on Saturday mornings. we would each read a chapter throughout the week. And on Saturday mornings, we would get together. And we, would read, read, we would go over the chapter and what we learned that week. And, and the books were wonderful. They were great. It was great books. They were lovely. But what was most transformative for me during that time is my dad would over and over again say, this is what I'm learning from this. This is what I've learned in my past. These are the mistakes I've made. Don't let the lie, don't let people tell you that you shouldn't share your kids of your own mistakes. Now, you've got to be wise as to when you tell them which mistakes you made. But don't think that just because you made certain mistakes, if you tell your kids those mistakes, that they're inevitably going to follow in the footsteps of, that you went through. You communicate repentance. You show your kids what it looked like to trust in Jesus, to live by the grace of God. I don't remember anything my dad said, but I know that those meetings with him on Saturday mornings changed my heart, and it changed my life. Lastly, the practical ways to instruct your kids is simply you've got to be available. You've got to create spaces where communication can happen, where you can listen to your child where questions can be asked when you can communicate with them. This means you can't overwork fathers. This means, moms, the housework, you should have a clean house. You should have an orderly house. But you should give time to your children. Don't overwork. Don't value these these things like cleanliness over your children's souls. Spend time with your kids. Go on vacation. Use your vacation time. I, it On my life plan this year, I, I wrote out one of the things I wanted to do is dedicate some more time to my kids. And one of them is specifically that I wanted to do is take my daughter on a monthly date. Simply creating space. I, have, I won't have any agenda of what to talk to her about. She's six. We're mostly probably going to talk about what's her favorite color. But I am creating space in her life where we can get into the way and the practice of her being able to articulate her thoughts and what she needs to talk about with me. All right, so that's the positive. Discipline and instruct your kids. What about the negative? What about this whole not exasperating your kids? What does that mean? The New American Commentary says this, that what Paul means by this word is that parents should not embitter or irritate their children. Now, you may be scratching your heads with this, and you go, man, I irritate my kids by simply being alive. And, and, and some people say that this means you can't anger your kids, and that is in truth, that you don't want to put seeds of anger, permanent seeds of anger in your children's heart by the way you discipline and instruct them. But it, it, you are going to anger your kids, probably every day. I mean, your children are not going to be happy when they get disciplined. There's sometimes, in order to love them well, you're going to have to anger them. But that's not necessarily what it's talking about here. What it's talking about here is to anger your children and embitter them because of the faulty ways in which you discipline and instruct your kids. How do parents facilitate a growing spirit of deep seated bitterness and anger in their heart, kids' hearts? Really, it's by getting the, the positive instruction wrong. It's by failing to discipline or failing to instruct as God has commanded them to. And so I'm going to give you 13. I'm going to run through this in a hurry. They're going to be on the screen. For some reason, when I sent it to the sound Ruth, I put di- disciple, disciple harshly. That's not what I meant. Um, it's discipline, disciplining harshly and others. So uh, when you take notes, correct my mistake. Here you go. 13 things that will exasperate your kids. First, by disciplining them harshly. And simply here I mean you discipline out of anger, you spank out of anger, and perhaps you even abuse. You are angry, you yell, your tone of voice is nasty. That's what I mean by harsh discipline. Second, you're disciplining with shame. This, this is a discipline that strikes at the heart of not just what they have done, but who they are. This is belittling them publicly and critiquing them publicly, and it is done for the purpose of embarrassing your child. You can exasperate your kid by perpetual discouraging words, negative remarks about who he is, and constantly pushing on what he has done by communicating disparaging words to him. You need to understand that your kid's sense of self-concept is most greatly affected by the words that you use about them. One of the greatest things in my life, the blessings in my life, is that my dad not only encouraged me, but whenever we had people in our household, my dad would publicly communicate in front of me, the things I was good at. So don't just try to avoid discouraging your kids, but also you have to move towards encouraging them as well. Parents, you have great power over your children's heart or sense of who they are. Don't be a constant critic of every little thing that they do, a running commentary of their failures. Third, discipline. You discipline for everything. This kid's exasper- exasperating. When you're just following your kids around, just waiting for them to mess up. When they can't ever breathe and get any space and you just ride your kids all day long, eventually, if they can never please you, here's what they're going to say. Forget it. Forget trying. We had um, great mentors in Mississippi, uh, a, a couple called Janie, named Janie and Spencer Mooney. They were one of those families that had like seven or eight kids and they were just unbelievably great parents and they loved on us so well and they mentored us in this. And a couple years ago, we, were, we went back and visited them and I, want, I wanted my children to behave in front of them. It would make me feel good. And my son, and I was just all over my son. I mean, every little thing, I was on his case. And Spencer, who I'd been his children's youth pastor, had never challenged me on anything, never called me out in anything in regards to my parenting or my pastoring. Just a quick shot at me said, "You got to give the boy space. Give the boy some space." It stung, but it was so true. You gotta give your child space, even yes, yeah, space to make mistakes every once in a while. Four, you can exasperate your child by disciplining them unrealistically. Here, here, what, here what I mean by that is you have unrealistic or unexplained expectations. Your children, if you never tell them how to obey or what how what to how they need to obey, it's not fair to expect them to obey. It's also not fair to expect them to behave like you. Listen, I know you were supposed to give birth to perfect little children. And that that despite the fact that you've had 35 years of maturing and sanctifying in your life to not look disgusting and terrible, that we expect our children to just come out that way. But this is not the the reality, is it, for us as parents? You see, our, our experience is quite like the butterfly, right? First, you know, a butterfly is first is an ugly caterpillar. And then they go into that cocoon thing and they come out really beautiful and they get to fly and flap their wings and it's great. But what do butterflies have for babies? Ugly caterpillars. And so the same is for you. You get to have ugly caterpillars for children. Now, yes, they are caterpillars that are made in the image of God. And don't forget that. And so don't treat them as just, don't, don't be the, just, you know, bizarre Calvinists who just likes to tell their kid how depraved they are. You see, God, what God said before, God said your kid is depraved. He said, you are made in my image. So, But you got to be patient, patient and gracious with your children as they move through the process of change. If you're unrealistic and expect them to behave in exactly the way you behave, you're going to exasperate them. Fifth, you can discipline inconsistently as a means of exasperating them. If your child's allowed to hit brother yesterday, but he gets spanked for it today, they're going to get annoyed by that. They're going to find they're going to exas- be exasperated by that inconsistency. This is why parents can't simply lead by their feelings and how annoying it is that you hit brother today and it really bothered me. We must be principal principled parents. This is something my wife and I are trying to learn. A example for us where we failed in this is at the dinner table. We had rules for what our kids were supposed to do at the dinner table. But they were supposed to ask before they stood up, but we never, we never held them to it. But every once in a while, we would in order to like, oh man, they're getting up too much. And I would just like zap them with some discipline. You got up, spanking for you, in the corner for you, no dessert for you. And they'd be like, The last seven days, I got up at my own free will whenever I wanted to. That's exasperating. Be consistent as a parent. Sixth, when we discipline without reason is exasperating for kids. By this, I mean you need to explain why they need to obey. Now, understand this, kids. Your job is to obey first and ask questions later. And parents, you should teach your kids that. But you should allow your kids to ask good questions Now, listen, we don't want our kids running in the middle of the road and us telling them they got to get out of the road and them saying, hey, let's have an intellectual argument as to why I should get out of the road. That's not the right time for that. But there is places, particularly when you have laws and commandments in your household that are not exactly biblical commandments, when they are your own wisdom principles, and that is totally legitimate... But don't ever elevate your family laws as being equal with God's laws. Communicate why you have a wise practice in your household and how that connects to God's word and why you want to live that way today. So be reasonable with your kids. Seventh, disciplining out of of selfishness. Simply what I mean by this is you punish your kids because they've gotten in your way. And they know it. Kids know it when they're getting disciplined simply because you're annoyed with them simply because they're an irritation in your life. That's seventh. Eighth, when you discipline your kids unevenly. This is what I was talking about with my son earlier in regards to blessings and cursings. If discipline is always negative, if it's always punitive, and they can never win, they never get encouragement, they never get blessings for obeying, this is going to become discouraging and embittering to them. Nine, when you discipline, but also withhold forgiveness and restoration. Holding your children's faults and failures over him or her is not Christ-like. And in fact, God says if you fail to forgive, he might just fail to forgive you. That's actually a biblical principle. I would say as a parent, you are responsible, particularly to communicate to your children, your love and forgiveness when they have disobeyed, when they have sinned against you, or sinned against one of the other kids in the household. And in particular, not only must you forgive them, but it is your responsibility as the parent and as the more mature one to pursue restoration with them. Do not discipline your children and then have them wondering if mommy and daddy still love me. Pursue them, love them, care for them, show them affection, laugh with them. It is a success in our household if after discipline, we leave the room, the place of discipline, and I am giving high fives to my kids and we're laughing together. That is a good thing. Your children don't have to feel your wrath for three hours after you've disciplined them. Discipline them, express your forgiveness and your love, and move on. That's what God does for us. Tenth, discipline without love. This is rather exasperating. By this, I simply mean that your child's performance is the means of achieving or losing your love. This is not covenantal love. See, God's the paradigm that God has given us is he saves us. He declares his love for us, that he's never going anywhere. And then he says, live like this. And Yes, there is, you, you get wrath from him. There is discipline when you disobey. But it, he never puts his love out of reach. Listen, what, I had a, one, one friend whose mother would, um, based on their performance, they were adult kids, based on how well they were behaving in her mind, she would take them out or put them back in the will. And every time she put them out, took them out of the will, she would call them up and be like, I took you out of the will. Your kids shouldn't wonder if you've been taken out of their love. Care for them and love them. It should never be the means of, of your love for them is how well they, they perform. This, is, this is, that is antithetical to the gospel. Um, to love your kids in that way, or not love your kids in that way. Eleventh, when you discipline without listening. This goes back to similar to the reasoning one. But listen, you have the role of judge. So let your child plead their case. Don't be an unreasonable judge. Listen to them before you you evoke your your judgments upon them. Twelve, failing to be available. Failing to be available. You may not be available because you've given yourself over to another lover. That may literally be another man or woman, or it may be your job, maybe your hobbies. It could be you've gotten divorced. I read about one woman who... um, her parents got divorced at the age of 10. Her dad was the one who, who told her about it. And he came in and he said, Honey, um, your mother and I are going to get a divorce. She said, Daddy, wait, what? I don't understand. And he said, Yeah, we're not, we don't get along anymore. And he and, and says, I, I have my bags packed. I'm going to the airport. I'm leaving in an hour. She said, Daddy, I don't, I, I don't get it. Why can't you stay here and live near us? I have someone waiting for me in New Jersey, he said. Daddy, oh, am, I, am I ever going to see you again? Are you going to forget about me? Oh, absolutely not. I can never forget about you. We'll work, we'll work something out. I'll see you for two weeks in the summer and two weeks at Christmas. It'll be okay. The woman said that was the last time she ever saw her dad. See, you're going to exasperate your, ch- your child if you're not there. Failing to be there, failing to be available, will make your child angry, will embitter them. You may not be available because you're a fool still, <clears throat> because you haven't grown up yourself. You may have a child, but you're not mature. You have no wisdom and instruction to give your kids because you're still living in a way that's even less mature than they are. Thirteenth, lastly, failing to raise them up is the last way to exasperate your children. This is going to go, point to our final point. The purpose of parenting is to bring them up, it says in Ephesians 6.4. It says, bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, discipline and instruction of God." It means your goal as a parent is to make your kids not need you. It means to get your kids ready to leave the house, to not be dependent upon you. That should be a goal as a parent. But there are plenty of parents out there who are raising their kids to remain constantly dependent on them, either relationally or even financially and physically. You can provoke your children by being overprotecting of them, by never letting them take risks, this is a appears to be a conscientious parent, but really they're a faithless parent. They're so afraid of losing their child that they won't let them grow up and be what God has called them to be. Trust God. Give your children some freedom to fail. Give them some space to grow up and learn on their own from time to time. That is a value. And at some point, kick them out of the house. A word to your mothers here in particular with your boys, with your young men Please, please be careful not to suffocate them. We know they're your babies, but they will find a woman and marry her. You may hate her guts. You may hate her guts. It's, it's true. The, it, there's nothing that's more bitter than the, the mom of a, of a boy. because uh, she She's holding on to this idol of her kid living under her wings. This is an idol. I just want all my chicks living under my wings. Well, why doing that, you know what? You're clipping their own. Let them go. And to you fathers, I would say this, particularly with your young men, many cultures in much of human history have had rites of passage for manhood. Articulate to your young men when they are no longer dependent on you. Tell them, okay, you're gone. You're a man. Have rites of passage. Articulate, celebrate it in some, some way, shape, or form, and say, you are raised up. You're going leave my house in a way that is beneficial for you and for us. That doesn't mean you don't have to support them. We get supported by our, fam- our parents and our family in many different ways. They're loving and kind and gracious to us, but we're not dependent upon them. We are sent out of the house, and that is a good thing. All right, now that is a lot to handle, isn't it? I mean, if you, even if you're seasoned, you're like, I got parenting, I'm good. You hear this list, and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to anger my kid by the end of today. Actually, I might anger them by the time we get to the car today. And that's probably true. It's probably true. You You will. Now, I, I, what I want to do this morning to end our time is to talk about motivating a motivating vision for you, just to finish. To move back from, we've talk, we've, this has been the micro stuff. I want to talk, move back and look at the macro for just a second and look at the greater goal of parenting. Ephesians 6.4 says this, to bring them up. The very second you bring a child home from the hospital, you're teaching your children not to need you, and you're teaching them and getting them ready to leave you. And this is the biblical pattern. Genesis we see in Genesis that we are to leave our parents, that we are to cleave to our spouses, or to our husbands, or wives, and we are to multiply and have dominion and dynasty over the world. This is what we see in Genesis. It's Psalm 127, verse 3. This is a passage that my parents read over us. They articulated the vision that was here in Psalm 127. They said it to us. We heard it, them say it to other people. It says this, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But there's something that God expects you to do with that gift. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Arrows in the hands of a warrior, in those days, the warriors what they would do is they would shape their own arrows, and it was they would they would sand down into a sharp point, and they would add the feathers. It was not it was not it was very artistic. They had to have a touch to it. They had to deal with each stick differently. They had to cut them in just the right way. This was an art. It's caused much work for them. But this is the vision and the goal for parents. That with your children, that you, what you ought to be doing every day is you are shaping and sharpening them to be an arrow that you're going to launch into the world. That you're an arrow maker. This is your vision as a parent. To make children who are ready to go into God's world to make it a difference for his kingdom and for his glory. It says this in Colossians 1.28, again, giving us a vision of parenting. It says, we proclaim him, admonishing, same word, every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in completing Christ Jesus. Mom and dad, that is your goal, to transform your sinful children, yes, but in making them and shape them into Christian disciples, who are mature and equipped to do great things for God's kingdom. Not to keep them home, not to keep them in to have a sweet little, you know, inoculated Christian life where they go to church and that's lovely, but that's all their that Christianity is. But you shape them to make a difference in this world. We must give our children a vision for mission and his kingdom you that we got to tell our kids the story that God is writing in this world. Not simply moral platitudes, but give them a vision of what God is doing. That there is a king, and he has a kingdom, and that king has come, and he is establishing his kingdom in this world. It is spiritual, and it's invisible, but it's being made visible by his people, and they're going into all places, architecture, the arts, into nursing, into education, and they're making God's kingdom visible in this world. That's the story you got to tell your kids, and they get to be a part of it. It used to be the childhood, we, we, we don't give our kids this vision. We let them be adolescents for forever. It used to be the childhood was this. You, were, you would go childhood, adulthood, elderhood. Then it was childhood, adolescence, adulthood, elderhood. Now, now with my generation, it's childhood, adolescence, the wandering years of your 20s and 30s, adulthood, maybe, and then finally you die. That is what we have done because we have given our kids the American dream instead of God's vision for their life. Give your kids a greater purpose. You see, if you're my age, you may have had a grandparent who fought in World War II. You ask your parent, hey, what were you doing in your 20s and 30s? Uh, yeah, I was fighting in the South Pacific. Our parents had purpose, our grandparents had purpose because they fought in a great war. Now listen, we may not have a great war for them to go fight in other, some other parts of the world. We got to give them the great war that God is establishing in this world where his kingdom is on the offensive against the devil's kingdom. That is what your children are going to live for. You give them that calling to live for the glory of God. That is a great calling. That will get your kids excited. Show them to apply God's word to the various ways that they can live for him in their life. Your late teens should be chomping at the bit and saying, let me out of here. I want to make a difference for Jesus in this world. We got to do this in our churches by what we celebrate and what we praise. You know, there was a woman... And at church in Boston, she, led, she litigated and led the, one of the greatest and largest environmental cleanups in American history. They cleaned Boston Harbor. Apparently, it was still messy from the Boston Tea Party. And so it was one of the greatest environmental uh, projects ever in 100 years in America. Her church never acknowledged it. They did acknowledge that she taught second grade Sunday school. Now, I want you to teach second grade Sunday school. We need lots of second grade Sunday school teachers. But we also should acknowledge the fact that when our people are engaged and are doing great things for God's kingdom, even outside of the church walls, you understand why your children drift away? It's because we've given a Christianity where they go and have a really good job and then Christianity is passing out bulletins on Sunday. That's a Christianity. Are your kids going to get excited by that? I wouldn't get excited by that. That can't be all it is. We have to give them something more. Here's what I want. My, in five to ten years, I want people to come up to my kids And be able to ask them what they want to do when they grow up. And I want them to say this. I want them to say, I want to rebuild the earth. Because that's what my king is doing. You give your kids that vision that they are called to rebuild the earth. To bring God's kingdom to bear upon this world. One final story to close this morning. Parents, this is a vision I would love for you to have. Of what it would look like to send your kids out as arrows into the world. It's about John Patton. And he writes, John Patton was one of the great uh, missionaries, evangelical missionaries in the 19th and 20th century. He was from Scotland. And he articulates that his dad was the form, most formative influence in his life in and, and, and shaping his missionary zeal. And he gives this account 40 years after he had left home. About his walk from his home in, in Scotland to the train where he was going to go to Glasgow to do inner city ministry and to go to seminary. And during this forty-mile walk, he remembers it, and he writes this about that time. He says his father walked with him for the six miles, for the first six miles. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that party journey are fresh in my mind and heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever this memory steals me away to that scene, for the last half mile or so, we walk together in unbroken silence. My father, as was his custom, carrying his hat in hand, his lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn the corner in the road where he could see, lose, he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing, head uncovered while i left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat adieu, I rounded the corner and was out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and I wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began his return, his head still uncovered. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. A vision for you, parents. We give you the gospel for the power of it next week. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as parents, this daunting and unbelievably difficult task, you have not left us without instructions, but you have given us your word, Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that first and foremost that we would be parents who know your word and then lean on you in prayer. That we would be parents who, who lead in our parenting by leading in prayer in our household, confessing the fact that we cannot even come close to carrying out even some of the things that we talked about today. Gracious God, I pray that we would, we would work hard and we would labor to cast a vision for our kids that is greater than the American dream, that is greater than merely even doing evangelical church life as it has become to be known but lord give our kids a vision of the kingdom and gracious heavenly father i play breast i play breast blessings blessings upon these parents that lord that their labors even in their failings that you would be so good to save their children that they would be able to send their kids off one day knowing that they love you and that their kids are going to make a difference in this world for the glory of your name and for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of your precious Son. Amen.